Rising. We have a great show for you today, and we have some big news on the economy front. That's right. Today, the Federal Reserve is expected to raise interest rates again. Reuters report, reports that stakes are high as Fed officials weigh the risk of a recession, a byproduct of raising interest rates too high too quickly. The hike today is expected to be 75 basis points. We, we have The Hill's finance reporter, Sylvan Lane, here to discuss. Welcome, Sylvan. Thanks for having me. Help us understand the reasoning here. With the risk associated with more interest strikes, is this the best tool that the government has at its disposal? So it's really the only one of the only tools the Federal Reserve has at its disposal. Now, there's a bunch of ways that the Biden administration and Congress could try to tackle some of the forces that are driving inflation higher. You know, a lot of that has to do with the war in Ukraine and the war's impact on oil prices, food prices, Russia blocking off uh, a lot of wheat and, you know, by virtue of their actions, oil from reaching the market. But the Fed can't really do much about that. So their job and, you know, to the best that they can do is to try to slow the economy enough to bring down inflation without it causing some sort of longer term economic decline. And the main way they do that is by making money harder to borrow and more expensive to get. So, you know, it's a risky option and it's made riskier by the fact that the Fed waited so long to use this. But they've kind of backed themselves into a corner here by waiting as long as they did to get going in the first place. We've had a lot of debate, I suppose, in the last uh, 24 hours or more about whether the U.S. is headed for or already in a recession with a, a, a kind of, I think, trying to redefine the term a little bit going on with the Biden White House, with the press, press secretary saying, well, yes, maybe it's not strictly if you have two quarters of, uh, of, of negative reverse growth. And I, I just saw a column from uh, Paul Krugman uh, kind of saying the same thing. Do you, do you have thoughts about this kind of effort to redefine the term to maybe deny that things are as bad as they are? Sure. So I think there's, there's two things going on here. The Biden administration is focusing on this very technical definition of what a recession is that a group of economists used to determine, you know, specifically when the U.S. is in a recession. Now, um, the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is a think tank that makes that call, they consider things like, you know, job growth or job losses. So the White House isn't wrong that economists technically consider a recession to be more than two consecutive quarters of economic growth declining. That used to be a good rule of thumb, but in this COVID world, things have been thrown so out of whack. Uh, you know, we're still seeing pretty strong job growth. So it's not super clear that that rule holds up right now. The other part of that is you can have an economy facing trouble and an economy that's not great for people without necessarily being in a recession or knowing that you're in a recession. So while the Biden administration may not be wrong to say we're not in a recession right now, we may not be in a recession right now, there's a risk of papering over some of the real problems in the economy that could eventually lead us there. Mm. Well, just this week, Walmart actually cut its profit outlook due to inflation as shoppers are now forced to spend more on food and gas. But some big brands aren't backing down from price increases. That includes Coca-Cola, Dove, Huggies, Diapers, they all said they'd have to keep costs high unless consumer spending takes a nosedive. 
This comes as more Americans are feeling the sting of high energy costs and are having a harder time paying bills now than when COVID hit. That's according to the U.S. Census Bureau. Four in 10 adults said it's been difficult or some, somewhat difficult or very difficult to cover usual household expenses in a recent poll, implying that more than 90 million families are currently struggling under inflation. And when asked about the impact families are having in response to the high prices on food, the White House had this to say. Our economy is uh, more resilient uh, to the to the types of challenges uh, that we faced. Uh, for example, you know, with respect to uh, food, we're a net exporter of, of, of agricultural commodities, and obviously the, the high prices are hitting Americans very hard. But uh, they're, they're in in a way that is different from some places that are facing famine, for example. Uh, our economy is uh, more resilient. Yeah, this is this is the issue. It does feel like all of the con conversation about recession is a little misplaced when the argument seems to be let's squeeze the average working people to draw, drive down consumer spending. Let's let them feel a little bit of a recession. You know, we're, we're we're causing this effect by making it more difficult for them to buy the things that they need by making those goods more expensive, and also handering about the fact that it isn't in fact a recession. What is the what is the distinction at a certain point if people are already feeling so overwhelmed financially and economically uh, to be playing these kinds of uh, these kinds of uh, semantic games? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is we know that there are a lot of people in this country struggling right now with how high food and gas prices have gotten. Uh, you know, the Fed is trying to do the best they can uh, to the extent that they can to calm that down. But, you know, this is a tough situation. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about, you know, the pros and cons of, you know, you hike interest rates to slow the economy. Well, that affects the entire economy. Now, you know, folks who see inflation as a little bit of an, a, an annoyance, higher rates is, aren't going to hurt them as much. But when you get into the squeeze where, you know, rates are getting higher, but inflation may not be coming down, that hurts people who are living paycheck to paycheck who for them, the, the cents at the end of the dollar figures on their receipt really do matter. For a lot of the country, that's not the case. But that's the difficulty of the situation that we're in. You know, the White House is trying to keep people uh, calm and keep people reassured that things are going to be going OK. You know, there's a political interest in doing that with the midterm elections coming up. But it is also important to make sure that people don't entirely lose faith in the situation because then it could get harder to dig out of. Earlier, you brought up the Ukraine-Russia situation and how that is contributing to some of the economic pain Americans are feeling. And that, honestly, more than a lot of the other factors, the pandemic, supply chains, et cetera, that have helped create our current, our present circumstance, that is something that is within the Biden administration's purview to have a different policy. We could stop sending aid. We could, you know, press for more of a diplomatic outcome. Uh, there are various things we could do. But the Biden administration has been very clear, has said that they, you know, want to continue and, and will continue and will keep sending money uh, supporting the Ukraine uh, cause really, uh, no matter what it takes, is I think the direct line I've heard from the White House. Uh, you know, do you... Is, what do you think what do you think will be the impact of that you know continuing to affect the uh, the prices people are experiencing the energy costs that you know undergirds so much of the of all the other stuff so yeah i mean as long as the war in ukraine goes on as long as the us and european allies are committed to supporting ukraine and you know committed to actually supporting 
their attempts to fend off the Russian invasion of their country, we're likely going to see issues with food and energy prices continue to persist. Uh, you know, Biden has talked a lot about this as the cost of peace and the cost of global stability. And one can make an ec- economic argument that letting Russia run rampant through Europe is worse for the global economy and the U.S. in the long term. So that's the calculation that the administration has made. The ideal situation is that inflation across the rest of the economy comes down as we continue to deal with these price shocks and that the Biden administration and its European allies figure out ways to shore up their supplies of food and energy that make them less reliant on Russia. But it's you know pretty clear, You know, I'm not a foreign policy guy, but it's pretty clear that we're not close to the war in Ukraine ending from uh, what we've seen. So this is going to be something we have to kind of deal with for a while, it seems well, that, like. That's, that's the issue, Sylvan. There is a way that talking about these issues, you know, when, when one asks a question about what can be done, there is a way that saying, well, the Fed only has these limited powers is a way to narrow the conversation artificially and not talk about the huge elephant in the room, which is one of the key factors that's driving inflation. I understand why economists might not necessarily want to weigh into the geopolitical aspect of it all. But that that kind of balkanization of issues, I think, is really negatively affecting the discourse and preventing folks from realizing what they could be doing to hold the Biden administration accountable. Because very rarely, I think, in the public sphere is the war in Ukraine treated or discussed as though it has the potential for ending. There's a lot of, I think, buy-in to the idea that, you know, we have to do this because of some Monroe doctrine type of a thing where we are going to think Russia is going to run rampant across Europe instead of the more limited claims that were made at the beginning of this conflict. And I am worried that there's a kind of rhetorical escalation or a rhetorical kind of um, acceptance of the status quo that is basically wiping off 50 percent or more of what could be resolving the, the solutions that could be resolving the current economic crisis from even being discussed. Certainly, you know, the, the war in Ukraine is obviously it's it's a incredibly difficult situation. You know, any way you look at it, it's going to be an economic issue for a while. Um, the way that the Biden administration has tried to handle it economically, at least, has been, you know, trying, you know, at first it was a lot of, you know, this is Putin's price hike. And then eventually it's like, OK, well, if it's Putin's price hike, what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. And we've seen the Biden administration try to take some action on that front. Uh, yesterday, they announced that they were going to take some measures that would give oil producers a guarantee for a certain price floor. So if they boost production, they're not going to all of a sudden lose money. You know, if you're concerned about climate change and what oil companies have done, you may not be happy about that. But this is a way that the Biden administration is trying to you know, put a cap on energy prices to the extent that they can, because, as you noted, this, you know, the, the war in Ukraine there's a lot of different factors pushing that and a lot of different factors complicating whether or not the Biden administration can navigate around that as it tries to fight inflation as well. Mm-hmm. Well, Sylvan Lane, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. And we'll be back next with Brianna's Radar. Stick around. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie. I was thinking, I can't pinpoint precisely when the Democratic Party lost the plot, but when establishment Democrats attacked Bernie Sanders for securing a soft endorsement from America's most popular podcaster, I felt sure something important had shifted. 
Democrats had long been facing an identity crisis. Remember, Barack Obama was supposed to be the apotheosis of everything right and good and multicultural and unbought, the best the Democratic Party had to offer. And he just wasn't that great. He came into office with big promises to hold Wall Street accountable, to bring America's health care system up to date with single-payer health care, to codify Roe v. Wade into law and nominate Supreme Court justices that would expand and protect the existing rights of American citizens. But you know what happens? None of that. Despite having both chambers of Congress and a supermajority in the Senate, everything fell through, and Obama voters started looking to other outsider candidates Candidates like Bernie Sanders and, yes, Donald Trump, to save them from the two-party status quo disaster. 13% of Trump voters in 2016 had once voted for Obama. But this fact didn't cause the Democratic Party to reflect on its messaging or candidate choices. We got Hillary and then Biden. And the best the future holds is apparently a Westworld host too charmless to ever make it into the park. Yes, they're poised to make the same mistakes going forward, coalescing behind a soulless corporate candidate like Pete Buttigieg, who satisfyingly nails the identity politics bingo card without any of the substantive commitments to fighting for minority rights that justify diversity initiatives in the first place. Meanwhile, they are attacking genuine left outsider candidates that offer an alternative to the increasingly unmoored rhetoric coming out of the far right of the Republican Party. Joe Rogan understood the opportunity Bernie presented. He said so, and the Democratic Party attacked him for it, insisting that he must be a right-winger because of his guest choice or his willingness to clumsily wade into subjects about which he's sometimes an expert. And hot takes, which I have often disagreed with, but which one has to admit are often painfully mainstream, even to the left of the average American. And the Democratic establishment corporate henchmen for the populist party of lore punished Bernie Sanders for winning Rogan support, even as it was reported that other Democratic Party candidates had cringingly sought to be invited on Rogan's show. This recent clip, this is the guy they've been painting as right wing for the last few years. That's why we hate someone like Trump, because Trump believes he should be exactly. president and he wants to be president. Yes. And, and there's something like, a little icky about it. Out of here. Dude, and yeah. I think that was so endearing about Bernie. It was like, yes. this motherfucker don't want to win. He wants to help. Now, is his idea of help? Do you agree with it? That's to be said by the average person. But do you, did you feel like he cared about winning and controlling? No. I never got that sense from no, him. No, I got a sense that he genuinely looks out for the working class yes. and he genuinely wants to help people. That's why I said that I supported him. 100%. When, and when he was explaining how his situation works with taxes, that they would just tax a small percentage of speculation, of, of stock trading, just a tiny percentage of all these trades that are happening constantly, and that that money could go to education, that money can go to welfare, that money can go to all these different things that would use to benefit society. I was like, I'm in. That sounds good. If that, is that real? What else are you trying to do? trying to avoid war? I'm that in. sounds cool. What else are you trying to do? Trying to like eliminate student debt? I'm hey, in. what else? What about healthcare? Free healthcare? I'm in. <laughs> Joe Rogan has never had Trump on his show. He did not vote for Trump and said on his show, quote, by the way, I am not a Trump supporter in any way, shape or form. I've had the opportunity to have him on my show more than once. I've said no every time. I don't want to help him. I'm not interested in helping him. Okay. But despite that, Rogan is enemy number one to many Democrats, not because he's to the right of establishment liberal media, but I believe because he's 
of the ways that he's to their left on the material economic issues, the issues that really threaten the status quo. See, my working theory isn't that liberal elites are truly afraid of some horseshoe theory style union between the extreme right and the extreme left, their explanation for the Bernie Rogan alliance. After all, that would be pretty hypocritical of Democrats who are currently, let's say, helping a black face wearing conservative get on the ballot to challenge a progressive black woman running for the Rhode Island State Senate. It would be pretty hypocritical of corporate Democrats who just worked overtime to force North Carolina Green Party candidate Matthew Ho off the ballot despite his exceeding signature requirements and with the help of Mark Elias' law firm that has served as general counsel for Hillary Clinton. It would be pretty hypocritical of corporate Democrats like Nancy Pelosi, who are trying to keep a bill to deter congressional insider trading off the floor so it won't come to an awkward, self-serving vote. It would be pretty hypocritical of corporate Democrats, who easily, and I think rightly, forgave Jon Stewart after he apologized and moved away from the bigoted rhetoric that used to be all too common in this country just a short time ago. As always in these debates, it's left to the longest shot to say the craziest thing. I give you Ohio representative Dennis Kucinich. Uh, I, I, I would nominate any gay to the Supreme Court or lesbian or bisexual or transgender person to the Supreme Court. Yes, yes. All rise for the Honorable Justice Chick with Dick. Oof. Now, I'd argue that the reason so many folks went after Dennis Kucinich, like Jon Stewart did in that clip, was the same reason that Rogan poses such a threat. Both men are open supporters of the kind of wealth taxes and social safety net projects that would enormously benefit average working Americans, but would somewhat interfere with the ability of corporate elites, equestrians on both the left and the right, from Soledad O'Brien to Ann Romney, from growing their literal and proverbial stables. Democrats are having an identity crisis. Only 31% of Democrats, that's just Democrats, want Biden to run again. And neoliberal fever dream Pete Buttigieg is now beating Biden in the New Hampshire polls. Though, to be clear, he did that in 2022. Pretty much everybody beat Biden in New Hampshire. Amy Klobuchar beat Biden in New Hampshire. Elizabeth Warren beat Biden in New Hampshire. <laughs> the Democrats are failing, flailing, though, and it feels like there are millions of air traffic controllers on the proverbial runway gesturing widely in the direction of populism. Hey, Democrats, try attacking members of your own party who are openly corrupt. Use executive power while you have it to cancel student debt, tax corporate price gougers, open women's health care facilities on federal lands. Joe Rogan is once again doing you the favor of explaining it to you. Just act like you give a damn. Do something sincere. Be honest about the mistakes that were made in, say, the COVID rollout, and explain how you're going to avoid repeating them with monkeypox. Beat Make America Great Again by showing us all exactly how America can be great. But here's what the Democrats are doing instead. You can't be pro-insurrection and pro-cop. You can't be pro-insurrection and pro-democracy. You can't be pro-insurrection and pro-American. There can be no greater responsibility than to do all we can to ensure the safety of our families, our children, our community, our nation, and our law enforcement officers. I will always meet that duty, just as you do every single day. 
as members of a critically important organization. Someone, anyone, please tell me who is this for? Who ordered this half-warmed over dish? Who among us had zombie cop booster on their bingo card? Look, look, everyone wants more safety. Tons of Americans are concerned about rising crime, but fund the cops harder? Is that really the position Democrats want to take weeks after the bloated Uvalde Police Department proved what leftists have been arguing since Biden's notoriously ineffective and destructive 1994 war on crime bill? That throwing money after the police does not, in fact, result in more safety? Abigail Spamberger, Virginia Democratic representative, whose hobbies include spying with the CIA, courting affluent Republican voters, and punching left, is applauding Biden's new initiative with the enthusiasm of a trained SEAL. I'm so glad to see the White House commit to getting 100,000 additional police officers on the nation's streets, she tweeted. But she, as always, is wildly out of step with the Democratic base. You know, not the donors, but the ones you actually need to vote for you, and not just fund your campaign. Did he make the announcement at Uvalde Rob Elementary School, tweeted one disappointed voter. Remember when Biden apologized for the 1994 crime bill and then did it again in 2022, observed another? Skyrocketing funding for the police and military while the planet burns, the pandemics rage on, and infrastructure crumbles, this isn't irrational spending. It's about ensuring ruling class safety in the face of social collapse. <laughs> Couldn't have said it better than that tweet myself. Literally nobody asked for this. As Brooklyn College sociology professor and author of End of Policing, Alex Vitale explained, when politicians have no plans to address poverty, homelessness, racial injustice, opioid overdoses, inadequate health care, etc., they turn to police to paper over their failures with more violence and mass incarceration. Police funding is up 179% since 1977 in inflation-adjusted dollars. Guess how much of a dent we've put in poverty during that time? It hasn't budged. The 1977 minimum wage of two bucks and 30 cents an hour, that's $10 and 66 cents in today's dollars. So we've moved backward on that front. But good luck trying to get the Democratic Party or the Republican Party to focus on raising the minimum wage, a policy that won even in Ron DeSantis's Florida. No, they're doing this instead. Over the course of your career, has your husband ever made a stock purchase or sale based on information he received from you? No, absolutely not. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Meanwhile, I gotta say, Republicans are setting up more assists for Democrats than Draymond Green could ever dream of. I mean, look at this. A conservative school board candidate in Florida says doctors who help trans kids should be, quote, hanging from trees. I mean, look, I get that libs of TikTok is cringe, but this isn't just some pink-haired college kid doing the most on a selfie cam. This is violent rhetoric from someone angling to have actual control over kids' lives. Turning Point USA was recently forced to condemn neo-Nazi protesters that, for some reason, keep showing up at their events. Ron DeSantis is overseeing one of the most unaffordable housing markets in the country, in Florida, where a record number of people pay more than 30% of their income on housing. At the same time, Florida was slower than most states at distributing $870 million in federal housing assistance, and conservatives in the state attacked the successful 2020 ballot uh, initiative for a $15 minimum wage. 
I cannot stress enough that there are a multitude of openings here for Dems. The bar is on the ground. Unfortunately, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And if Democrats do what I suspect they're going to do and fumble the ball, well, there's always Dem exit. Abigail Spanberger is probably going to blame the left for the Democratic Party's failures anyway. Might as well make it count. Mm -hmm. So, Robbie, look, I was, I confess, kind of triggered seeing that Joe Rogan clip because it reminded me about the insanity of the 2019-2020 primary race, how there seemed to be so much opportunity in the world, so much opportunity for coalition building, so many voters that were Obama voters that had become Trump voters who were interested again in this independent Bernie-style candidate, and seeing over and over again how the Democratic Party acts useless in many respects, but is always on the ball when it comes to derailing genuine left candidates, whether it's someone like Bernie Sanders or Matthew Ho, it's demoralizing. And even though things are really bad for Dems right now, the economy is difficult. It's a difficult, it's a difficult incumbency to deal with. There are opportunities. And you can see that because conservatives are grasping for those opportunities, even if they're uh, doing so in bad faith. They understand the value of populism, the appetite people have for anti-interventionism, and they are at least making the right noises. And it is frustrating that the party that I would argue should be doing it in good faith is not only not doing it, they're doubling down on some of the biggest mistakes of their past. Yeah. I mean, what can I add? That's exactly what's happened. Um, Democrats are losing these voters. We see it in the poll results. Uh, We see it just in public sentiment. We see it then in the treatment of figures who were straddling that line or were, were shepherding that that transformation were attracting independent-minded people who cared about class issues, who were, bri- who were acting as bridges for those voters to come into the Democratic Party. People like uh, Joe Rogan are now pariahs, have been made, rendered pariahs by a small cabal of what media elites, essentially, yeah. I guess party operatives. It's more the media than anyone else. Maybe they're taking their cues from specific party elites, and they're setting an they're setting the agenda, and it's an agenda for failure, for utter failure. The Republicans don't even have to do much. They just have to sound open right. to these voters, and they're winning them just by sounding open. Right. And then they're doing, right, then they, it's some of the extreme crazy stuff that you were calling out here that, right, makes me and every, basically everybody who's not like a hard right ardent Trumpist roll their eyes. But uh, is there enough of that to make those voters say, ugh, I, I can't deal, stomach these people? Doesn't seem like it. Right. It's, it's, <laughs> on Republicans to lose. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's their game to throw, and I suspect they're not going to throw the game, unlike the Democrats. Yeah. All right, well, thanks for that, Brianna. We'll have more Rising in just a minute. There's something going on shortly thereafter. I closed it up long before Nancy Pelosi wanted it, or any of these people, including Fauci. I used to listen to Fauci and whatever he said, I did the opposite. I came out very good. That was former President Trump speaking at the American First Policy Institute in his return appearance to D.C. It is totally revisionist history. (laughs) Let's just be completely clear. That is not true. Trump did everything Fauci told him to do for months. He sometimes he he complained about it. Sometimes he he tried he kind of then undermined uh, Fauci and others by he would you know express frustration with mm-hmm. them. But he still did what they said. 
Yep. He, he, he praised that. I, I just, I mean, we, we just decided to talk about this 30 seconds ago, but in 30 <laughs> seconds, I, right, Trump wrote, uh, thank you, Tony. Uh, it, it early in the pandemic, but mm-hmm. still. Uh, Rem- remember, there was a whole scandal about how he had edited Fauci saying that he couldn't imagine anybody doing a better job than Trump. He kind of like right. edited Fauci saying that to make it sound more praiseworthy of Trump. Yes, and you was in a desperate for ad. Fauci's approval. Exactly. He wanted you to know that Fauci thought he was the smartest, most perfectest president ever. <laughs> so it's just, it's not now that Fauci is, and we have to remember at that time, Fauci did, had not yet become this radioactive polarized figure right. who is now despised, I, I, I think rightly, to be clear, mm. uh, rightly uh, disliked or criticized at least by people in Republican circles. It was not that way at the time, and, and Trump desperately wanted to He desperately wanted his approval. He Fauci. sat there. I mean, the thing is, what was so odd at the time is Trump was kind of compliant. It felt like the scale of the crisis had eventually gotten him on board. I don't know if some of the corporate interests kind of whispered in his ear and said, we got to get the economy back on track, so you got to get people vaccinated. There, there was a real coalescing at a certain point around what needed to be done in those late days of the Trump campaign. He sat there, he got his little shot eventually the following year on camera. All of that stuff was happening. So my question to you is, Robbie, do you think that Republican voters are going to buy into this revisionist history? Are they going to believe this kind of no. rhetoric? I don't think so. I, I think they know that, uh, honestly, this was one of the frustrations that even maybe the ardent, the really hardcore base has with Trump is that, look, he presided over a lot of these, um, it, I mean, the restrictions, I guess, were done at the state level, but he was the president. Mm-hmm. He was in charge, technically, of the vast federal federal bureaucracy that advised all the shutdowns and the masking and the everything else. Um, and that would eventually uh, implement uh, vaccine requirements on some workers before the Supreme Court undid Mm -hmm. that. So he, you know, the buck stops there. I, I would, I would have liked Trump better if he had reined in what I view as a totally out of control federal bureaucracy. But he didn't. He always talked about doing things and then didn't follow through on them. And I think even very conservative MAGA people, I think a lot of them understand that, Mm. that uh, even if they agreed with the rhetoric, or they agreed with the policy. Well, what you got was not that. Do you remember? There what was you a, got was tweets. It's there, just tweets. It's only it's only words. It's never actions. It's, it's, that's right. And do you remember there was that moment at a rally where he was trying to take credit and brag about the vac? You know, I developed the vaccines. Those are my vaccines. And the crowd turned on him and started yeah. to boo. Yeah. I mean, he has been doing this uneasy dance. He's definitely out of step with the hardcore with the base stuff. on vaccines. Yeah. And that's why some people think that Ron DeSantis is going to have an outsized. Yeah, I think think there's a variety of reasons that DeSantis will be very formidable and and is probably the favorite in a matchup between the two. Mm. Um, This, you know, Trump's continued obsession with relitigating the election is is of interest to a just a very shrinking number of Republicans, I think. Uh, Do you think that is in part because of the January 6th hearings and it's become even marginally more embarrassing for Republicans to have to defend? I don't think the January 6th hearings are really making it more embarrassing. I think Trump's mm-hmm. making it more because he won't move on from it. He wouldn't move on from it initially uh, when they when the Republicans then lost two very winnable Senate seats mm-hmm. in Georgia because Trump is not a team player, mm-hmm. which which is kind of like you thought he was going to be a team player. Come on. How many times does this person <laughs> well, have a signal like that, that he has no it. interest in anything but his own personal grievances? Yeah. I think that was a breaking point. I, I mean, there's been an endless series of breaking points. Again, even for people who like his policies and or like some of his ideas, like how he's changed the Republican Party, 
have to recognize that he's not he's not the right guy to implement that vision because he can't see beyond his own yeah his own look I, I will say stuff. this Trump was someone who came onto the scene and nobody had a lot of confidence in people treated like a joke who gaslit people about obvious aspects of his record he was a very public figure for many many decades featured in rap songs and home alone movies and the and the works and he came onto the stage as a political figure and would brazenly misrepresent who he was, what his politics were, completely flipped from a New York right. liberal into this, you know, evangelical loving, right. you know, supporter of conservative values, you know, thrice divorced, all of that. We, we all accepted that dissonance. The, yeah. the, the public accepted that dissonance. So it wouldn't surprise me terribly if Trump, who's one scale, you got to give it to him, this kind of wordsmithing and letting his confidence reinvent reality. If he was able to actually land the idea that he was uh, a Fauci antagonist and to completely subvert the roles that he and DeSantis currently have and kind of claim that territory of the <laughs> least... Utterly ridiculous. And, and also, COVID Fauci has become guy. critical of Trump, which is why he's doing this. Mm. Trump, as long as you say nice things to Trump, Trump... I mean, th this even is true of the state-by-state -state reaction. Like, he wasn't very critical of Newsom for a while mm. because Newsom had not said mean things about Trump, mm. even though Newsom was doing some of the most hardcore lockdown policies, then he was criticizing uh, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, because she had criticized Trump. For him, it's just all personal. Yeah. It's just personal. There's no way to run a successful political movement, is yeah. to just just have it be a cult of personality around, among very one very Could sensitive person. Could be a way to win a successful political campaign, though. He did it once. Uh, he did it, yeah. I Well... <laughs> I don't think he's going to do it again, but uh, this time he is going to be challenged by someone with some consolidation among the uh, the like the 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 sentiment that it should not be Trump. The people who felt like that it was broken up um, among with like thirteen like other candidates. Yeah. Um, I don't predict that happening this time. It's it's already really consolidating around DeSantis. Um, DeSantis clearly has more credibility, so much, I've said this a million times on the show by now, but so much more preference for DeSantis among conservative media, among, among Republican elites. And then, it, right, if the base hates DeSantis, if the base rejects him, that won't matter. But it doesn't look like they hate him. It looks like, at worst, they like both Trump and DeSantis. Maybe yeah. that'll change when they actually have to butt heads. That will be interesting to see when they're actually brought into conflict, because right now they're not really, you don't have to pick a side between the right. two. So it'll be interesting to see how it breaks down when, once you do have to pick a side. Yeah. But I, I, it's it's tentative to make any kind of predictions. Yeah. But DeSantis well, has a lot of advantages on his side. Yeah. And oh. no, one, no, no one is going to buy that. <laughs> I, we'll I see, just, just did we'll the opposite. See, when? When? I never say never oh. anymore. Look, we will definitely be following that, that tee yes, off between will. the two of those men and changing public opinions about that respective race. And we will have more rising for you after this. President Biden is expected to make a decision on student loans by the end of August. At least that's what he said last week. On the table is whether he'll keep the repayment moratorium in place or cancel student loan debt for some altogether. Biden extended the moratorium back in April, but many don't feel it has gone far enough to relieve borrowers. Many, including Brianna it Joy me. Gray. I'm many. <laughs> you are the many. <laughs> Look, 
I, we've talked about this on the podcast, uh, on the show, sorry, podcast brain. We've talked about this on the show a lot and my stance on this is pretty clear, but regardless of what you substantively feel as an individual about student debt, there can be no arguing with the fact that Biden has the authority to do this by executive order and that he promised during the campaign through 2020 full debt forgiveness for people who attended public colleges and for all students who attended historically black colleges and universities. So we're looking at poll numbers where only 31% of Democrats want him to even run again. He's violated campaign promise after campaign promise, starting with the checks that a lot of people still haven't forgotten. And now he's violated this enormous promise at the same time that Trump is the guy who started the moratorium and Biden is poised to be the guy who ended the moratorium. And it's pretty funny. Now, if you... If you, like, even if you don't want to cancel student debt, if it were me politically, not that anybody's taking my advice, I would not be the one who stops it. Because to be honest, the moratorium incurs more, uh, infers more of a, um, a financial benefit on more people than a $10,000 loan cancellation will, to be honest. So if you have any kind of size of debt burden, the average debt of an American student is something like $35,000 a year uh, total. But many people obviously have 50, 100, six-figure debt especially people who went to grad school. $10,000 a year is less than one, uh, one year of interest, right? So if the fact that these things have been postponed over the last two years means a lot of folks have been able to save and actually pay down the principal of their debt. The real harm of these student uh, debt payments is that many of us are at 7 8% interest rates. So you just can't catch up. This myth that we're just not paying, we're just right. not working, we have dumb jobs and it's our fault for getting art history degrees or something. That's not what's going on. The problem is that people are paying and it's like uh, you know, droplets in the ocean. So if it were me, I would say, Biden, just extend the moratorium. If anything, you should promise, hey, vote for me, vote for Democrats, because we're going to keep this moratorium extended and you don't know what the, the Republicans are going to do, instead of reminding everybody about all your broken promises by both ending the moratorium and then throwing pennies at the crowd. Is the goal, you think, to do this, if they're looking at eight, uh, August, I think they said, mm -hmm. you know, throw, give somebody in the coalition a reason to actually show up and vote Dem uh, with some kind of reward for doing so right before the midterms? That does not sound like a smart plan to me, if that is the plan. Because here's the thing. He is, he is uh, looking poised to renege. He has been not very confident about even the $10,000 promise. Mm -hmm. And even the $10,000 is caveated enormously. So what that means is turning on the spigot for, there are, I believe, 44 million debtors in America, 44 million student debtors. You're turning on this big, and not just for these young people, but for seniors who are the fastest growing group of people with student debt obligations, people who are having their social security checks garnished for student debt at a time when we are in a not quite technical recession. Um, and obviously people are really hurting because of gas prices, food prices, and the like. Many families have only been able to sustain. These aren't kids, mind you. These are, these are people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s with families. They've been able to sustain because for the last two years, they haven't been, able, they haven't been required to pay the extra two, three, four hundred dollars $2,000, $3,000 in student loans on top of their sky-high rents and everything else that's going Don't on we have, in the country. We have to do something to fix the system. That I if agree. We're, if we're creating more people who are in this arrangement every year who are, who are you know, debtors mm -hmm. to, for a process that is not worth it, that, is, that does not yield yeah. much of it, maybe it does in specific cases for you know, some of these degrees, yeah. costs a lot of money, but then you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, something. 
it's not true for a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, you said the, you, the line about the art history people. Well, that is some of the people. Yeah, I mean, I have um, an art history degree. <laughs> I also have a law degree. But look, here, the, the, I hear your point, and that's why on the Bernie campaign, like, we're not naive to that. The reality was we are spending, the government is spending and backing all of these loans. These are federally backed loans, right? That's why Biden has the ability to, to cancel the student loan right. debt. Right, it's a... But instead of spending all of that money, instead of trying to pass this money through the banking industry, which then profits off of our interest payments at the expense of America's students, which we have as a country an investment in, it could simply fund public colleges. And then everyone who goes to a public college, a, a private college rather, you're on your own, you made your bed. But the fact that us having a robust, high quality public education system will bring down the competition in, uh, in private colleges as well. And it is in fact the guaranteed federally backed loans that drove up the prices of tuition at all these institutions in yes. the first instance. No, I agree. Absolutely. There's no question. You subsidize something, you get more of it. You, they, you confused people. You conf the whole system is confused about what the actual price of education is and then it's not correlated to the value of it whatsoever. That's true. But people don't know what they're paying because it's paid for. The government helps you pay for it on the front end. And then, yeah, yeah, get the degree, you know, have your fun. And then later, we'll talk about you paying it back. And then, then later comes and like, wait, what? What do yeah, I owe? There has been a bait and switch. There's been a real yeah. misrepresentation. Meanwhile, the, so the colleges, the government's going to help you pay it on the front end. It, the price can be as high as they want it to right. be because right. you're not paying it then. Right. And, you know, they're, they're happy to, the, yeah. the, the schools obviously are happy to take the money because they know it's federally backed. They're guaranteed. No other right. institution would give these 18-year-olds a loan and say, yeah, you're probably going to pay it off. No, this is, this, these are perverse right. incentives. So it's price disguised. It's perverse incentives. Right. So, but I, what I would say and remind people is that we used to live in a country where we didn't have the expectation that you would have free kindergarten through high school either. Mm -hmm. And we understood at a certain point that to compete on a national stage and for people to have a legitimate chance in the job market, you had to provide for your citizenry to have these kinds of basic skills. Like it or not, we live in a world today where people also have to have some it's, it's very advantageous to have some education but, after high school, whether it's vocational school or these um, I don't know if I agree with that. These I, kinds of colleges. Well, that's certainly true, but we have incentivized that we, because we have created this system where you do need to jump through additional hoops to be considered a productive member of no, society in the labor I market. I think you learn things in college and vocational school. I actually school. don't. <laughs> well, maybe in vocational school. A lot of what people learn in college is clearly not valuable because they forget most of it. Robbie, if you look at, if you read academically adrift, if you, the, the level of retention of actual knowledge of the average person who goes through college is, is virtually it's, it's non-existent. It's not about what you re retain. The, the point well, of going to about? college is not being able to recite, you know, Plato back at people when you get to your nine to five. The point is that you're well, learning. Well, then why do you spend four years reading Plato? I mean, like, that is what most of it is. Robbie, you're learning the critical reading skills and analytical skills to enable you to sit that. here and do this job. I don't know about you, but when I was 18 years old, I would not have been able to be as effective as a journalist, as a um, as a as a podcaster, as a political. You know analyst, how I learned to be I a journalist? As a, at working as as a uh, working at the newspaper. Yeah, I think <laughs> in was, college, sure. I, I think there's but it wasn't any of my classes. Robbie, it wasn't any of my. It was the. It was the. It was a essentially an apprenticeship. Yeah, look, that's that's what works. We're talking about vocational education here as well. So if you want to talk about whether or not college is as geared toward your long-term professional goals in America as it could be, restructuring the kinds of things we learn in school, shortening the amount of time you have to spend in a lot of grad programs. There's a yeah. whole discourse in the legal community about whether you need three years of law school versus two, and people have the same conversations in other disciplines. I think those are perfectly legitimate conversations to have. But I don't think when you look around the world and see the competition and see how much better people's 
for primary education is than ours, not to mention their advanced education, to say, oh, we should just throw everybody to the wolves and people don't need to be informed about how to live our lives and make our society better. We absolutely need vocational training and other kinds of training. Um, and I would like to point out that under Bernie's model of student debt cancellation, it absolutely applied it to people who had student debt from tra trade school, which really doesn't get discussed nearly often enough. To get a license to be a trucker or to do a lot of these vocations, it's extremely expensive. And a lot of these programs are predatory, and they prey on the idea that people think they're doing the right thing. I'm going to train to be um, have this vocation, and there's a lot of like for-profit commercials and luring people in from lower income groups into these programs and then they are saddled with a whole lot of debt and they don't necessarily get the well, I bet there's some kind of vast and extensive take. licensing regime that forces you to do something like that so in the context of the student debt conversation I wish we would broaden it up and I wish that people would reporters who have access to the president and his staff have more pointed critiques of why they haven't done what they promised, including to the Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, whose name for some reason never gets brought up in these conversations. So Yeah, he's kind of a he's kind of a low level, a behind the scenes kind of operator right now. But, that's, that that like a yeah. choice. It seems to me that <laughs> one of the most popular policy platforms out there and one of the things that is riling to so many Americans is the student debt issue. Reminder, this is 44 million Americans. We're getting emails about this. We're getting yeah. like constant reminders that this thing is starting up and this is a real impact on our lives. This is a crucial election time issue and you have to be incredibly out of touch, have kids that never had student debt, never had student debt in your entire life to think that this is just a nothing burger of an issue. You think gas prices are bad? Wait until you start having to pay back a thousand dollars a month to your student loans. Don't do it. No one do it. Don't take out. Don't take out. Don't go into debt to go to college. Not worth it. Never worth it. Don't do it. All right. More rising right after this. Well, we have a couple COVID updates for you. First, the state of California is notorious for having some of the strictest COVID-related restrictions. But this week, the city of Beverly Hills voted not to enforce L.A. County's mask mandate. And that decision comes as the county has seen an uptick in COVID-19 cases. So I'm, I'm happy to see democracy at work. The people, the, the, through their elected representatives or their appointed representatives, whoever runs Beverly Hills, uh, said no more to this mask tyranny, Brianna. No more. No, We've had they're, enough. They're allowed to do it. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what to tell you. Individuals can continue to keep masking. I hope that folks who are at particular risk, which are a substantial part of our community, a substantial number of Americans have either some comorbidity, whether it's um, diabetes or uh, being overweight or you know asthma or these things which are very, very common. And I hope people focus more on the efficacy of high quality masks and that that is really the last line of defense that people like that have against infection from community members. You know? But all it can be is a recommendation for people to, if they yeah, feel like I'm, wearing it. Yeah, and I'm making it, that right. recommendation. Yeah, so yeah. there's no mandates yeah, happening here. Yeah, yeah, no, I here. know. But even, it's, what I'm saying is even the mandates that do go into effect, right, they never require the mass that we understand are perhaps yeah, making that's why some I'm, kind I'm just of difference, take, which is taking just a so moment silly. to reemphasize that the higher quality masks really do work and that people who have concerns can avail themselves of them. Mm. Yeah. Meanwhile, in Wuhan, China, they have a different approach, obviously, to dealing with COVID. One million residents in the city were put on lockdown as cases of COVID-19 there are on the increase. The city came to a grinding halt after four asymptomatic cases were found in the district. I mean, it's that's just... It's, it's fascinating to me insane. that they have such good contact tracing and testing going on that they were able to identify 
just four asymptomatic cases in the city and then respond, you know, I think that most folks here are not especially receptive to an approach that's quite as um, strict as what's being done in China. But results, and I know some people, people quibble with the accuracy of the numbers, the results are that they have had exponentially fewer COVID deaths uh, than we have. And it would be interesting to see if we could finally, two years into this, implement some of the tracing policies that help manage the pandemic, even if people are less sympathetic to the behavioral interventions that they've implemented in Wuhan. Which are extreme. People, you know, shut up in their homes, people not leaving the drones, broadcasting messages to control your soul's desire for freedom. I mean, it's a pretty dystopian kind of things. Why do you think there hasn't been more advocacy for some of the other things that don't require constraining human behavior, like getting better ventilation systems in schools and public places, like doing more tracing and genetic te testing to see, we're talking about this in the context of monkeypox. Uh, I was reading that uh, in West Africa where they've been dealing with it for a while. They do a lot of you know genetic tracing to see what you know, to, to trace which infection came from which place and how the virus is moving around the different localities. I mean, isn't this you know, a, just our, our government officials, our health bureaucracy, not prioritizing the right things? I mean, there was never a concerted effort to prioritize test and trace. Yeah. Uh, they, they just, they simply did not go with that option. In fact, they screwed up testing royally and then never looked back. It's also interesting to me that there's not a lot of arguing the alternative. Like, you know, if I'm making the case for, let's say, you know, universal health care, I expect most folks would say, well, here's the critique of it, and I think that this solution is better. We saw this a lot during the Democratic primary, folks who want health, you know, Medicare for all who want it, and all these kinds of variations on a theme to try to fill in the void. But if I were someone who was very, very frustrated with mask mandates and things like that, like so many people in the country were, I would have expected a more robust political argument for some of these kinds of interventions. And I've seen few people calling for it in a way that I think is ultimately going to I was very supportive of testing and funding for testing. Absolutely, because testing is not uh, not invasive. Sure, not, if, if you were advocating yeah. for it, then that's great. But my, my the, the argument I'm making here is that when you don't argue on the alternative, it basically sets you up for the government thinking that if they only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And they're not, there's not a more robust public conversation about the kinds of things that you could do that don't require keeping people in their homes or forcing people to wear masks or but they're doing it, forcing people And they're to doing it again right now. They're, if you hear stories, you know, we read some accounts of people who've contracted monkeypox, it sounds horrible, and then their difficulties of even communicating to health officials that I, I have monkeypox, I need help, and also here are the people, the contacts I've had, are you going to do any follow-up and talk to those people? And and no, they don't even take their full information. Yeah, they're, so, do, they're screwing well, it up right now. That's what happens when, I'm sorry, we don't have, so many people don't have primary care physicians because so many people go through long stretches in their life where they don't have insurance. People who contract monkeypox, I recently learned that you have to quarantine for about 21 days, I believe, which is hellish if you have any kind of job in all right. of these right-to-work states where they can fire you for any reason. I mean, um, a lot of these people, people are don't, too sick to, I mean, you, and, and you're, you, it's you, not just you you're, to stay have, home. you're stuck at home, you're, you can't actually go. Yeah. People should be able to comply with right. quarantine when you're sick 
from anything, yeah. but especially when you're sick from something that's at the root of uh, what could become another uh, pandemic or epidemic. And unfortunately, we don't have programs for people to be paid when they're sick, even though staying at home is in the public good. So these are all, I'm sorry, structural consequences of the way we've set up our society. We've incentivized people to cover up their monkeypox and go right back to work. There's a reason why the I think the the job that people have of people who die the most from COVID is line cook. That was like the most fatal job during the pandemic because folks, they, they had very little job security. Those kitchens didn't close down. We were all ordering food service delivery and someone had to cook the stuff and they just kept going in, kept going in, kept going in with COVID. And there are public health implications for that as well as obvious moral and ethical implications for the people involved. So I'd agree. Like I, I do wish we had the kind of social support, these other things outside we of mandates big, that help to, to make well, this I better. Hear you, but we do, we have a vast, well-funded, employing tons of people, gigantic, disease control federal organization that has screwed up so badly and is in the process as we speak of screwing up in many of the same ways once again and it, it's not it's not a lack of there you can't say it's a lack of power or funding or what i i don't know what it is but I don't, it's I don't something know it fatal is to the organization or to the nature of people who come to occupy vast federal bureaucracies that they are just ineffective or like conser institutionally conservative or not adapting to new circumstances very we have to you know properly follow proper protocols that kind of that, that hamstrings organizations from being effective because it is it is it is horrifying to what they're doing they're going to do it the same exact thing again I don't know what the, the issue is there. I think that people should do some investigation to see what's going on actually at the CDC. Because it does feel like when we watched that recent interview with the public health official being asked, you know, why is it that you aren't, that the Biden administration isn't declaring a public emergency? Because they were having a conversation about how these states didn't have to report unless there was a public, uh, you know, public emergency, a federal emergency declared. And the interview subject seemed to comprehend and understand right. that the thing that they were complaining about could be fixed if they would just make right. this declaration. It's an emergency. Now do the thing. <laughs> but there was this resistance that felt like it wasn't a, a like dissonance because the person mm -hmm. didn't want it to happen, but they, their hands were tied. They're waiting for the call from up on high. And we don't know what's going on with the Biden administration. We don't know what's going on with senior leadership and why they're not taking these steps. That Government websites obvious. are crashing as people are trying to you know, book vaccine appointments for the monkeypox vaccine. This is something that happens all the time with government websites. Not very much with non-government websites, but constantly for signing well, up for government unfortunately, websites. Unfortunately, like, for example, the famous example of the Obamacare website crashing, that has a lot to do with outsourcing to private contractors. I'm sorry, the government has forgone its ability to do basic things in a way that it used to 60, 70 years ago. Government has been shrunk. I'm sorry, very deliberately, these agencies have been shrunk no. by Republicans. What it's agencies been, have been shrunk? It's been a shrunk. specific, not a open, single agency specific has been shrunk. open policy uh, since the 1970s in the Powell mem memo to make government ineffective so people can make arguments about the government wasn't effective. When FDR, the most popular president in American history, was in charge, he went around and he hired people who were farmers, who were engineers, et cetera, to be leadership in the agriculture department and all of these other kind of agencies. There were people who knew what they were doing and they were able to er internalize and effect without having to pass all this money off to private contractors, the things that need to be done in this country and which have to be done at a federal level because we're building highways and bridges and public public benefit well, that, and administering things like a public health response. That's not what happened in the case of the testing with the CDC. Private organizations came up with great COVID tests. The CDC ruled them all legal, did its own that didn't work. So it's it, it goes both ways, maybe. 
but I mean, yeah, okay. There were also issues with the private tests. There were issues with distributions of tests. There were issues with pharmaceutical companies um, keeping other cheaper international generics out of the market. There was a lot of things that were happening in the private sector as well that was a problem. The difference between the private sector and the public sector is when the public sector messes up, ostensibly we have democratic accountability tools. When the private sector messes up, they have corporate shields that prevent them from ever being liable and they abscond. And that's what you're seeing with all of the liability shields that were became a priority in the early days of COVID and why probably no one's ever going to get any money from the way that their grandmother was killed in somebody's nursing home under Andrew Cuomo and the like. The private so sector is more accountable the, to the people the, than the public the, sector. The only, oof, strong disagree, could, yeah. but that's an ongoing conversation. My, my only point here is that there are a number of interventions that don't involve mandates that really aren't, I think, a bigger part of the conversation because the people who don't want mandates aren't saying, I understand the critical issue here. Let's come up with alternative solutions that can help keep our community safe. It ends up being these conversations about just bashing each other over the head about how much you hate mandates. That's fine, but let's work together to come up with other ways to keep people safe instead of denying that there's an underlying problem here. Well, one more issue here that I'm sure we're going to quarrel over. New York is calling on the WHO to rename the monkeypox virus due to the, quote, potentially stigmatizing effects that the messaging around the monkeypox virus can have on vulnerable communities. Meanwhile, the director general of the WHO called on social media platforms to work with the agency to combat monkeypox disinformation. The stigma and discrimination can be as dangerous as any virus and can fuel the outbreak. As we have seen with COVID-19, misinformation and disinformation can spread rapidly online. So we call on all social media platforms, tech companies, and news organizations to work with us to prevent and counter harmful information. Of course, there are <laughs> numerous examples of messaging from the government on COVID being wrong and you know, causing social media companies to adopt moderation policies related to the pandemic that are wrong. So I, that advice should be discarded. But I would not search for a new name for monkeypox now. It seems like that's... That ship is sailed. Yeah, there's two, ship, there's right, we two already issues. know what it is, so we should just call it that. And also, it could be, if you say don't call it that something, what, what if people start calling it something more stigmatizing, given that it's mostly yeah, a I, I don't understand the, the stigma point. But there's, there's two <laughs> issues here. So there's the, the renaming the virus thing, which I think is silly. And I thought I heard people saying that like a month ago when they first when this first started really emerging as a real issue. And it doesn't seem like that is for anybody. I don't know. You know, that's one of these ideas that's going to be attributed to the left. And we're going to have to have a whole media cycle about it. But I don't like nobody wants this. So stop pretending like this is a real thing. It's not. Nobody wants it. Listen the second Brianna. issue. Listen. <laughs> The, the second issue is the um, misinformation point. And obviously, I have some reservations about social media's ability to monitor these things for the reasons that you point out. At the same time, you know, my, my primary concern is that the, the desire to control or anticipate human behaviors is going to lead these organizations to be selective with the information they tell us in the way that we had in those early days of COVID, right? So there was this argument back then that we didn't want folks to rush out and buy certain kinds of medical protective gear because the doctors and nurses needed it the most and people, staff in hospitals and things like that. So they soft peddled the stuff about it being airborne. They told us right. they didn't, weren't clear about what masks were effective because they didn't want to rush in the bank. I get not wanting a rush in a bank. I wish they would just say, decline from buying this gear and isolate if you can because medical professionals need it. And 
and, and like buy up stores to deliver it to medical professionals instead of lying to people. And what I'm seeing now, I'm hearing about now with a monkeypox, I just, just did an interview with a doctor from my podcast, is that there's some concern that if people talk too openly about the ways that monkeypox are, is transmitted and that the potential threat that it poses to people outside of the gay male community, that people, other people are gonna rush to get the vaccine when principally the folks who are affected are gay men and they should be getting the vaccine first and foremost. And we were having this conversation. I was like, okay, I totally get that. I don't personally want a vaccine, but I still would like to be fully informed about how transmission is required. So to the extent that I can take steps. I mean, the the WHO advice yesterday that says, don't share wet towels. I was like, oh, you can share it. (laughs) You can pass it with wet towels. That's way less intimate than some of the modes of transportation that have been described up until this point. you had to have attended an orgy last week, then, okay, no thanks. If it's, right, towel sharing, I'm, I'm getting in that line for that monkey yeah, you, sexy. You, you go, well, no, that, I mean, that, that is the opposite of my point. My point is that I need people to well, understand. You know, okay, it, we, 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 can, we'll wait for the next, but it's, look, this but is. I want to know so I don't share towels, you know what I mean? Oh, so I'm not at somebody's, yeah. you know, house, and maybe I use Perel again, and maybe I'm touching surfaces differently. I want to be able to make those decisions for myself without this presumption. Go ahead and limit my access to the vaccine. Go ahead and say, as they have done, that you have to have done X, Y, and Z things. Yeah, but I never, but you know what? I never agreed with that, really, when we were doing that for the COVID. Do you remember the, the excessive gatekeeping of the, okay, today, it's people between the ages of, you know, 62 and 71, and also if you have between one and three health conditions, so and when, you were when born when you're getting off the Titanic, Robbie's like, forget women and children, <laughs> I'm getting in this boat. <laughs> well, well, at that time, though, it was not... It, it didn't. It didn't seem like there was any point to it, it because was, there, it was older people first. Doesn't that make older, sense? Well, older people first made sense, but there was some. There was some racial coding of it too. There was sure. some that didn't make sense to me. Yeah, there was I, some. Uh, then there was essential workers. Well, who's not an essential worker at this point? That definition included virtually everyone. Not me. You. I see what you're. <laughs> <laughs> Rising is essential for various. No, I'm ki- I'm kidding about that. But the, but if you stretch their definition to what counted as an essential worker, at some point it was basically the entire workforce. I, well, I would quibble with how those lists get designed. Mm-hmm. Just like I would quibble with some of the hoops that are being required of the monkeypox vaccine. But broadly speaking, I think it's the BMI quite stuff. Clear. You're gonna weigh yourself, and if you're that that was done for um for uh yeah, for, I think, uh, I think most people who and, know that they're you know, obese know it from having gone through the last... not even a good indication. No, it's not a good indicator, but it's at, at a certain point you have what you have. But I do think that some of the things were too imprecise and not particularly accurate. And I think that the same thing is happening with monkeypox. Yeah, I, but the general principle that there are some people who obviously need, have a greater need when there's scarcity is a, a good one. I just wish that we lived in a country where people had a kind of, I'm sorry, patriotism or sense of community of yesteryear where they would self-censor and wait in line so that the more vulnerable members of our community could be safe. I wish, I wish that the government would have more confidence in, vote, in, in Americans to go ahead and do the right thing. And I also wish Americans would actually raise to that challenge because unfortunately we have seen some behaviors in the context of COVID that gave me some skepticism that people will do the right thing if given the freedom well, to self Rather to than relying on people to do the right thing, I would like if the FDA and the CDC would get their shit together well, this was, and get this more of these vaccines. We, need more, we, we don't have enough vaccines right now for the, even if we're this, just keeping it. And, this, and, and, this was Joe Biden not ordering the vaccine. Vaccines, knowing right. that this was coming down the pipe. Right. We clearly need, right now, we need more vaccines for the vulnerable community, the gay and bisexual male community. 
Uh, and we need to understand a little bit more, it needs to be better communicated, exactly how often this will spread outside sexual transmission, mm -hmm. which is not clear to me based on the conversations we've had with people the last three weeks from like, Almost never to wet well, towels. it kind of can, right? That, well, that's a big difference. It's a lot of wet towels that's out here. That's a big difference. So that <laughs> we, that needs to be understood, and we need more. We just we need obviously more of these vaccines. Yeah. So yeah. we don't need to change the name. That is not a not not priority. Not on the list of priorities <laughs> for things to do. More rising right after this. Former President Trump and former Vice President Mike Pence returned to D.C. yesterday and each gave a speech possibly previewing a 2024 presidential bid. Let's take a listen. I'll always be grateful for the opportunity to serve as Vice President. So I don't know that our movement is that divided. I don't know that the President and I differ on issues. But we may differ on focus. I truly do believe that elections are about the future and that it's absolutely essential at a time when so many Americans are hurting, so many families are struggling, that we don't give way to the temptation to look back. We're living in such a different country for one primary reason. There is no longer respect for the law and there certainly is no order. Our country is now a cesspool of crime. We have blood, death, and suffering on a scale once unthinkable because of the Democrat Party's effort to destroy and dismantle law enforcement all throughout America. It has to stop, and it has to stop now. As the former allies signaled potential bids for the White House, our next guest makes the case for how the GOP can move on from Trump without losing his voters. Frank Buckley is the author of the Republican Workers' Party and Scalia Law School Foundation professor at George Mason University. Welcome to Rising. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So it's an interesting question. It's something a lot of people have tried to take a stab at. Is it possible to have Trumpism without Trump? Is it possible for whatever the Republican Party has evolved into uh, under this man to continue to be successful while separating itself you know, from someone who is very backward looking, is very grievance focused and you know, wants to relitigate um, the, the previous election when so many other Republicans obviously want to talk about the future? So what do you think is the strategy? Well, I agree totally with Mike Pence that it's important to look to the future. And if you look to the future, to 2024, I think what you're not doing is looking to the fellow who lost in 2020. Uh, Trump lost uh, in a big way in 2020, and I think would do so again in 2024. But what you don't want to do is say goodbye to the people that Trump brought to the party. And so the trick, I think, is to perhaps help nudge him away by... Uh, convincing his voters that you haven't given up on his message, right? So what we don't want, I think, is a snapback to the old GOP, uh, the GOP of Mitt Romney, the GOP of, you know, kind of orthodox right-wing economics. Uh, we want a free market system. We want a capitalist system. But we also want the kind of system that's going to make sure that people aren't left behind. Well, that was what was behind Trump in 2016. I can say that because I was there and helped craft the message and write speeches and so on, right? Um, so that's not all that hard. 
right? The, the, of course, the trick is trying to come up with somebody who's going to be able to articulate that. And, and, and you know, I, I like Mike Pence a great deal, but part of me as a boomer wishes for Joni Summers. You know, you won't remember it. Johnny get angry, Johnny get mad. Okay. So, you know, I'd like somebody who could convey <laughs> that kind of passion, right? And at the same time say, you know, look, you guys, this is a different party. And in the same way that we had your interest at heart in 2016, we have your interest at heart in 2024, and we're doing it without the baggage that would turn off so many voters, uh, you know, who, who really won't forgive Trump for what happened on June 6th, on January 6th. So that, you know, that can be done, and, and there are certainly people who can do it. Professor Buckley, help us understand, um, you know, what are the parts of Trumpism, in your view, that should be maintained? What what are the things that you think really did bring people into the party that are also worth keeping? Because there is an argument that some liberals might say that some of the stuff that brought people into the party was the same stuff that is causing some traditional Republicans to be uh, frustrated with Donald Trump. That kind of fearlessness and willingness to back down, the kind of guy who would allegedly lead a march on the Capitol is exactly what is so appealing to some cohort of voters. And I wonder how you see negotiating that specifically. You know, what are the maybe populist elements that you want to bring forward? You know, you say that people were attracted to Donald Trump because they were concerned that the old Republican Party might have left people behind. But is there are there concrete policy suggestions that would help people believe that the new Republican Party, the forward Republican Party, would follow through on some of those promises and deliver it into something more than rhetoric? And is that going to be enough if you drop some of the rhetorical points that, again, I think really were appealing to some folks? Well, certainly it can be done. And I wrote a book on the subject that just appeared. It's called Progressive Conservatism. And and what I do is I tie this back historically to what the GOP was, the party of Lincoln, of Teddy Roosevelt and Dwight Eisenhower. right? And, and that was a party which more closely resembled Trump's party than, say, Mitt Romney's party, right? So, you know, partly this is going to be a, a matter of avoiding what had become of the GOP for 60 years after Eisenhower. And, uh, you know, so we're, we're what are we talking about? We're talking about kind of a, a minuscule part of the Republican Party, the libertarian element of it, uh, which, you know, constitutes about 3% of the voting populace and, and no more than that. And they're, they're not even particularly Republican. Sadly, for uh, my, in my view, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, uh, you know, those people, 3.5% of the voters in, in 2016, and they split their vote evenly between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And do we care about them? And the answer is no. What we do care about is the kind of policies that will attract most Americans and, you know, again, I went into great detail in my book, but there were a lot of things mostly sticking it to the left over horrible policies they have. You know, there, there's some talk right now about structural racism, but the interesting question is who built the structure? 
But affirmatively, uh, Professor Buckley, I, I would love to hear what are the policy prescriptions that would, the Republican Party could offer to make life better for folks, because that's, that's what you offer up as what will distinguish a new future-focused Republican Party from, from Mitt Romney's party. And my concern is that you know the topics that you're going to right now, some of the cultural politics, the grievance culture, the critique of structural racism, that is exactly kind of the rhetorical points that I think really does define Trump as but which I think sometimes distract from the extent to which a lot of these populists on the right don't offer anything to replace what Democrats have put forward, which is something I've critiqued as well. I think that we really do need real populist solutions, the likes of which, in my opinion, Bernie Sanders offered. And I critique the Democratic Party on that basis. But I'm wondering specifically from a policy perspective, once you get rid of, once you tear down everything the Democrats have wrought, what's going to be built up in its place? Well, you know, tearing down is going to be very useful and a lot of fun, too. Okay, so let's start with that. I mean, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, a big problem has been the decline of the American idea, the idea that wherever you, whoever you are, wherever you come from, you can get a get, get ahead and your kids will have it better than you did. And we no longer believe that. And who's responsible for that? Well, you know, the immigration policies of the Dems actually import immobility, right? The education system, well, the Dems are tied to their teachers' unions. The, the schools are terrible. Are the Dems going to do anything about that? No. Uh, the regulatory mess is a hurdle in the path of people who want to rise. All of these things are democratic issues. And yes, these are all things that with vigor, the Republican Party should oppose. But progressive conservatism, the tradition of, of Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt and Eisenhower, would also mean things that may look more progressive. And I'll give you one example. Trump said that in 2016, he wanted to get rid of Obamacare and replace it with something better. And something better than Obamacare would, for example, be something like catastrophic you know, health insurance, which a great majority of Americans want. We don't mind 25 buck co-pays, but we don't like the idea that we could walk out of a hospital bankrupt. So there, you know, there are things like that we can do. I think the crucial thing in the short run is, run is getting a handle on inflation. So th that's going to mean just shutting down a lot of idiotic you know, giveaways by the Democratic Party. But er in, in terms of a long-term agenda, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. Earlier, you mentioned uh, the need for you know, Trump to kind of step to the side and then you know someone else to run with those ideas that you're, you've been discussing but in practice that seems difficult because trump has in, in no way shape or form ever previously given any indication that he will listen to like a like a share the stage or give the spotlight to someone else sort of advice he didn't really participate as a, in a in a team built thinking kind of way right in the immediate aftermath of the election when he didn't help the Republicans uh, hold on to the Georgia Senate seats. In, in fact, they lost them in, in large part, I, I think, because of the distraction he was providing. So, you know, it is it's it's e much easier said than done, I think. And I, I wonder if what your thought on this is to to shove Trump aside. He, he's giving every indication, as far as I can tell, that he is going to make another go at it. Uh, and then and now maybe face very credible opposition, maybe even insurmountable opposition from someone if if there's a uniting behind another figure. But uh, it it's, doesn't look to me like it's going to be you know out of the kind graciousness of his heart that he's going to say, all right, it's someone else's turn. There's like nothing about him communicates that idea. 
Well, three things. Number one, it's a long time between now and 2024. And in between, we're talking about somebody who's aging out. So that in itself might be enough to do it. Secondly, uh, you know, I think he needs to understand and, and perhaps will understand that if he runs, he will be a two-time loser, right? That he won't win. He might, you know, even if he got the nomination, no way I think would he, would he win an election. And, and that's got to do something for him. Mm. And thirdly, look, if he can find a credible replacement to anoint somebody who says, look, I will carry on the Trump agenda as it was in 2016. It didn't happen. It didn't happen because he got opposition from, you know, two years of, of democratic craziness and paranoia uh, over you know, a Russian collusion hoax. And also he ran up against the libertarians in the party uh, you know, for the first two years, people like Paul Ryan. So if you get somebody who says, look, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be a different party. It'll be a Trump-like party without Trump. And we're going to put into effect all of the things you want. And we'll give you an honored place at the, uh, you know, at, at the convention in 2024. Um, you know, all of that are the sorts of things which might persuade him to, to, to drop out. But then again, as, as you've suggested, we're talking about an extreme narcissist. So would that be enough? I don't know. I'm just saying, look, it's time for the people who supported Trump to ask themselves, how come the Democrats are supporting pro-Trump candidates in the primaries? What do they know? Are they being crazy? I don't think so. Well, why do you think that Democrats are supporting pro-Trump candidates in the primaries? Because they're easy defeats. Well, that was the argument that the Hillary camp uh, Clinton campaign made when they made Trump the Pied Piper candidate in 2016. You seem very confident that Trump isn't going to have the chutzpah to, to prevail here. I, I can't help but think that that is a very similar sentiment to the one people held back in 2016. Well, I was there in 2016, and uh, it was pretty unreal. And you know, nobody thought it would happen, with a couple of the exception of a few people, uh, and I wasn't even one of them. But you know, then again. Um, you know, we, we can't predict the future. 2024 is a long time away. A lot of things can happen. I'm hoping the right kind of things happen and that Trump will be savvy enough to realize that he'd better go out as a one-time winner as opposed to a two-time loser. Mm. Well, Professor, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. We'll have more Rising right after this. There always seems to be a new trend on TikTok these days. So today we are going to be talking about what seems like people's latest craze, pink sauce. Let's take a look. We need to talk about pink sauce and why a lot of people are concerned for the people that have bought this sauce from the lady that makes it on TikTok. Because the hue of the sauce keeps changing. Every photo, every video, the sauce color looks different. And also, she doesn't describe what it actually tastes like. I don't know if it is to promote it, get people to buy it, just to see what it tastes like, but she will not describe the taste. She says it's because she cannot describe the taste. I've been hearing it kind of tastes like ranch. Not exactly ranch, but basically ranch. Now now that people have purchased it and received it, they're noticing that there's a lot of stuff that's really sketchy with the bottle. The nutrition facts seem to be off. It says there's 444 servings. Some of the ingredients are spelled wrong. The website also just seems so poorly put together. Like, what is this? Why does it say this? 
It's literally like $20 for a bottle and a lot of people are now worried that this creator is going to be facing lawsuits. The sauce was also arriving in the mail in these bags. They were not like boxed up with bubble wrap and we're talking about liquid sauce here. So obviously some people were receiving them literally exploded. It's honestly so sad. I'm really rooting for small businesses, but when it comes to food, you need to be careful with what you're buying and the safety and everything. So like I'm the trying video to buy it, but it's sold out. <laughs> so, it's, it's, people are going crazy. So like the video said, there seemed to be some concerns with the sauce uh, that especially in the heat wave, I think that's what really spiked some of these concerns. People's sauce was uh, arriving rancid. It and says 444 the, servings per container. That's another one of the concerns the that this facts. seems very uh, not sciencey. And people have raised, you know, does this have FDA approval? Yada, yada, yada. I don't care about that. but Well, I thought you might not. Yeah. But she <laughs> back saying the FDA doesn't regulate food, which is not in she's half right that they don't usually pre-approve things that are sold, just ingredients that go in food, but they do obviously respond when complaints are raised. And I gotta say, this is extremely popular. There is a whole culture that people might not be aware of where folks order food <laughs> off of like Instagram and TikTok videos. People cook this woman as a, a chef, people cook stuff that looks really good. And people buy it to be shipped, shipped like between states. And this was shipped without any refrigeration. There's references to milk products in the thing, but there is no coolant, there's no ice pack, there's nothing mm -hmm. like that. And some folks are saying this really reveals the idiocy of the average consumer or the average TikTok user because why would you trust something to be shipped through the mail that is a food item in the first instance? There was also an, an issue, an incident last week where somebody ordered some kind of like crawfish boil <laughs> through the mail that arrived predictably rancid and everyone was dragging them on the internet because what do you expect? But I do think that people, Maybe it's because of the nanny state and FDA and all of that, but people do have an expectation that if they allow you to buy something, that it's going to come safe. Like we are, we are, we are inured with that. Like we really believe that in America. When you live overseas in some other places, you realize that just because they let you do it doesn't mean you should do it. But in America, we don't have we that mindset. On Amazon, it comes safe. <laughs> well, I think safe. that that's. That's probably true in most instances, or at least you have recourse. But here, I think people are also concerned. They're showing pictures. Do. So I'm on the Pink Sauce website, <laughs> and they're showing pictures of things. But like, are these the ingredients? Dragon fruit, yeah. sunflower seed oil. A dragon fruit is the pink thing, I guess. Mm -hmm. Honey, chili, and garlic. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess there aren't any red. Well, the chili's kind of a red flag. I, I've expressed that I don't like spicy foods very much, or, or really anything interesting. Surprising um, the audiences <laughs> every day, Robbie. <laughs> so this might be a little too much flavor for me. Um, Gosh, well, it's supposed to taste like ranch. Can you handle ranch, Robbie? You know, ranch <laughs> is on the spicier stuff. side, but I can, uh, I can, I can deal with uh, do with ranch. Um, well, like, the thing that seems to have tried to people is that it looks like Pepto Bismol. And you have these it videos does. of folks pouring what looks like Pepto-Bismol on like chicken and other kinds of savory foods and eating it. It is millennial pink. Remember millennial pink? Yes, I remember millennial pink. That took us all by Absolutely. storm about 10 years ago or Absolutely. so. And was it already 10 years ago? It was like six years ago? I don't know. Let's say it's more recent so I can justify yeah. having these millennial pink dining chairs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we've, got a, we've got a millennial pink, my wife and I, um, uh, kind of an ottoman situation going on. I also on. have a millennial pink. <laughs> 
happened. Look, look, mistakes were made. It's fine. Trends happen. But the trends that I've indulged in haven't necessarily given me gastrointestinal issues. What like I, I thought of something else it looked like, but I can't remember. It's kind of like a cotton candy pink. Sure. Um, although, as they were saying, it's different shades in different images of it. So also concerning. Not consistent. Yeah. Uh, also concerning. So yeah, she. This person really blew up. Um, chef. I mean, I would order some, and we could try. We could do our own little taste test. Taste test, but uh, you can't <laughs> buy it. It's sold out. Yeah. Well, I would say, people, if you have extra pink sauce, send it to the Rising headquarters. Send it to, but yeah. After it's been shipped the one time, unrefrigerated, Double I'm fully shipping. not. Double shipping. <laughs> we'll find, we'll find, find somebody to to try it. Uh, let's see. We'll get the producer back here. Camera camera team. <laughs> send a, send get a sacrificial uh, right, sacrificial that, lamb. It's supposed to be an OSHA issue. Up Eat your pink sauce. All right. Well, maybe we'll get some questions this week if we do a rising questions from people yeah, who tweet actually us, tweet us about the pink sauce. DM us whatever you whatever you like. Want to hear your pink sauce stories? <laughs> pink sauce um, yeah. I'm having so for I actually packed a lunch today. Uh-huh. I'm having a salad that's just lettuce and bacon and wishbone Italian dressing. Okay, guys, we really do need the pink sauce up in here. Save Robbie with pink sauce. (laughs) We'll have more rising for you after this. A new interesting media story arose where else on Twitter yesterday when Gawker posted an article now since taken down accusing Thomas Chatterton Williams, who is a an infamous uh, kind of intellectual dark web figure, um, the one of the signers, I think the organizer of the Harp, the famous Harper's letter that drew a lot of ire from all kinds of political corners of the internet. Um, it was accusing him of having attended the What is a Woman uh, documentary, if you want to call it that, which has uh, gotten a lot of critique from the left for uh, transphobia. I thought it was, oh, I thought it was an Alex Jones documentary. Oh, it was an Alex Jones documentary? I'm sorry if I got that wrong. Uh, but was he was not, in fact, there. The story. He was wasn't there, and he wasn't there at all. <laughs> he wasn't there. The, the story was based on the idea that uh, other, other kind of um, maligned political actors, one of the hosts of the Red Scare podcast, had tweeted a tweet, and the association was because he had tweeted a picture of him, that he was actually there. And so they ended up writing this whole article up making fun of right. him for attending a an event which they felt like confirmed his right-wing priors, I think was the right. idea. And, and I don't even, so, and first of all, right, Glenn Greenwald was there, mm-hmm. uh, I think doing some kind, yeah, I think he interviewed Alex Jones. I don't, th- like, you tend a movie premiere, you don't necessarily agree with the politics. Sure. It, it might be about the uh, censorship or restrictions on Alex Jones, which you might think are improper, even if everything Alex Jones says is crazy, which mm-hmm. it is. Alex Jones is crazy, uh, or the things he says is crazy. He might even know he's crazy. It seems like a performance sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but so I don't think there's any problem if he did go to the, the thing. Yeah. But he didn't. He, he wasn't didn't, there. He didn't it go. just. So Thomas Chatterton Williams tweeted, this article is insane and just a lie. Gawker has been harassing me for months now, and I just ignore it because it's not real journalism, but this has to be retracted. I never even heard of this movie until now and wasn't anywhere near Austin at the premiere. And what I thought was actually more interesting about this is that apparently Gawker has a list of people that are kind of sanctioned for them to beat up on for article grist. 
And Thomas Chatterson Williams is on that article, the list of people. It's called um, the Staff Guidelines, and it's under the heading Gawker Religious Texts. And it offers a pretty predictable set of targets. The category of, quote, people we can make fun of includes the obvious targets, celebrities, royals, and politicians, as well as New York Times, uh, left, they call left-wing Twitter bugaboos, Glenn Greenwald and Thomas Chatterton Williams. Now, it will come as some surprise to leftists to necessarily characterize, I, I, I think I like Thomas a lot. I wouldn't call him a leftist, but it shows kind of the extent to which this yeah. is like they hate Barry kind of Weiss. They hate uh, intellectual dark web type people. Yeah, in fact, you know, criticize those people if you disagree with Engage them. Engage with their arguments. But they're just—I uh, mean, Gawker, of course, has an ethos of just unrelenting cruelty. Yeah. Um, They—they they, in their previous incarnation, they were both. Uh, cr more cruel and more relevant, I guess. They, ha they had a moment of, more than a moment, longer yeah. than a moment, yeah. of, of incredible political relevance. They did uh, occasionally some good journalism, to I be fair. I enjoyed a lot of it. Uh, I'm not sure I would say I enjoyed a lot of it. I think some of it was just <laughs> over, so unbelievably soulless, yeah. unnecessary, vile, in fact. And then they were shut down uh, after losing a lawsuit which there's some interesting free speech discussion to be yeah. had about it, but it was some, yeah. they were basically engaged in revenge porn on some level. And uh, they, the outing of whoever's brother it was, the, they published at one point a video of just a woman being sexually assaulted in a, in a Hulk, restroom. The whole Colgate. No, that was something, that, well, that was what actually took them down. Yeah. But, but they, they just published, it was just a random woman, mm. not a woman of any significance. Mm. It's a video of her drunk mm. having a sexual encounter in a bathroom. Mm. And they just published the video of it. Why there was no news? Oh, I other than, that it was part. so bad. And then, and then when her father messaged, it was like, "Please take this down." They, their, their uh, impulse was to defend it and was to say, yeah. "No, she's just kind of got to live with this." Yeah, well, look, it's a shame because I did. There were a number of writers in the Gawker Jezebel universe right. that you know had many, many sites that I really enjoyed and I used to return to read their writings and then participate in the comment section quite actively back in my pre-Twitter days. But this this just takes the cake. I don't understand how you're trying to reestablish yourself as a journalistic enterprise when you have a mistake of this caliber. And then to find out that the mistake likely happened because there's a literal hit list of people that you're encouraged to go after. You know, I, I generally don't encourage litigious responses to these kinds of things, but I see that Thomas Chatterton Williams is considering it here. And if there's a case, this is, this <laughs> this is, is not one. there. Uh, I have to, I don't usually relive my, but this is my first uh, ever sort of media scandal I was involved in mm. was when uh, Jezebel baby's called scandal. Yes, baby's first scandal. <laughs> Jezebel called me an idiot. I just pulled it out. Is the UVA rape story a gigantic host ass idiot? I'm the idiot they're referring to. Uh, <laughs> Shortly thereafter, it was in fact shown to be a hoax. Oh boy, yeah, that's that's the kind of liberal. <laughs> they, apo they apologized to me yeah. for that. Uh, it's fine, and I didn't care at all. But uh, but uh, it was funny. It was the same well, kind of. What's the statute of limitations on it, Robbie? Because between your lawsuit and oh, I know, I would I would never sue over. It's you know, and calling me an idiot isn't lie. You could think that about me. It's right. not. Right, I mean, you, you have to prove it. They didn't true, say I was Robbie. somewhere. I was. <laughs> But it's different than saying someone is somewhere they're right. not, which that is a factual right. uh, distinction. Right. Um, just, you know, opinion is not, even if the opinion is is, uh, is dumb. But, uh, yeah, good old, the whether, good old whether Gawker or not glory the days. opinion is dumb, really. Right. <laughs> but, uh, but something uh, um, that uh, Jesse Single, uh, mm -hmm. another kind of independent reporter, uh, hosts a podcast that's uh, really good, blocked and reported, he pointed out that if this was the the 
maliciousness, the mm -hmm. sneering mm -hmm. with which Gawker would cover someone not in their protective bubble mm -hmm. of people they like. What you know? What if one of those figures? What if Glenn Greenwald mm -hmm. had uh, written an article uh, accusing someone of being somewhere that they weren't actually? Mm -hmm. Think of the, think of how what what a big deal they'd make. Uh, how indicative of that person they would make it. Yep. Uh, but they just did it, and it's, yep. yeah. This this story happened according to Thomas Chatterjee Williams. So many names, uh, because he says this is a, a quote from that tweet thread. It. It seems to me this reporter, reporter simply did her research by looking at uh, Anna Kay's Instagram stories, the Red Scare co-host, and mistakenly assuming we were in the same place because she reposted a story of me wearing a very funny Red Scare t-shirt. Beyond pathetic. So someone who was there just retweeted it, like posted a picture of him wearing a shirt from her podcast. And that was the, that was the link. That was the sleuthing. That was the journalism that got, first of all, that wouldn't even be article worthy, just to right. be really clear. <laughs> but to the extent that it, it could have been true, it just wasn't even. So this is where we are. We're going to get on the uh, people it's okay to mock list of gawkers one day. Oh, if we're not already there. We're not already there. <laughs> all right, more rising in just a minute. Stay tuned. The Zelenskys are taking a time out from the war in Ukraine to pose for Vogue. Uh, these that. pictures dropped. People have been talking about them all morning. And additionally, we also have a video that they released of the photo shoot so we can see the behind the scenes action. Oh, really setting the mood. Interesting juxtaposition there. So, you know, people's <laughs> objections here, I think, are pretty obvious that in the midst of everything that's going on in Ukraine, this feels performative and appropriate. The contrast is too high, especially given that Zelensky has really tried to frame himself as the guy who's in the thick of it and the grist of the war, so busy he can't even change out of this olive green T-shirt he's become known for. And now it is quite literally a Vogue prop. It feels a little propagandistic, to mm -hmm. be honest. And okay, just, to, just to be clear, I, the Russian invasion is terrible. It is on Russia's fault. They should not do this. Vladimir Putin, don't like him, shouldn't be in charge of Russia. Don't think we can do anything about it, but if we could wave a magic wand. That's what yeah. I would ask the magic wand you need to do. But Zelensky is is suspending uh, political parties, uh, political figures who've clashed with him, um, centralizing the press. He is governing now as an autocrat. Mm. So what are we trying to preserve here? We're trying to preserve liberal norms or the Western way of government and society, but they're throwing it all out the window right now. So like right. legitimate opposition that maybe doesn't like what the current course of action is that's going to result in the ruin of every city in the country. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think that we should also not miss the fact that this is a political project. You know, as kind of cringe as the photo shoot is, I think the copy of the accompanying article is almost worse. You have this section of the article that is really trying to do this kind of, I'm sorry, identity politics, I am women, hear me roar, this is a women's issue, won't somebody think of the children? There's a passage where they talk about um, uh, Zelensky's wife and Jill Biden meeting in Congress, saying she was speaking as a mother and a daughter, not just a first lady. Quote, she showed us pictures of Ukrainian children who had been killed by Russian rockets, including a four-year-old with Down syndrome, before amping it up. Quote, I'm asking for something I would never want to ask for. I am asking for weapons. 
weapons that would not be used to wage a war on somebody else's land, but to protect one's home and the right to wake up alive in one's home. I'm sorry. To use this image of a, a slain child with, with Down syndrome in order to renew a call for weaponry from the American government seems to be craven beyond belief. It's the Simpson meme of won't somebody think of the children taken to a, like a really craven level and now literally dressed up in the context of a fashion shoot. Mm-hmm. This, this, is, this is a political ploy to get the average American who feels very deeply about this obviously horrific imagery that she's presented to us to endorse a conflict that they know very little about and which I would argue we have very little role to play in. What are more weapons going to do? Are more weapons going to be the end of this conflict? Does more weapons mean Russia withdraws, um, Ukraine now exercises control over the Donbas, which they didn't even exercise control over to begin with? Uh, Is that what's going to happen? We have to be realistic. That's not going to happen. Or that's not going to happen any time in the in the mere immediate future. Meanwhile, this effort is immiserating us domestically, and is not it's not protecting anyone's life. Look, I don't I don't want the Ukraine invaded by Russia, um, but clearly it is only going to come to an end with some kind of diplomatic resolution, right. some kind of agreement whereby part of Ukraine is now independent or uh, Russia aligned or whatever it is. That's what. That's the only way forward. That's the only way out of this. Yeah. Because we don't want World War III. We're not going to send right. ground troops. We don't win a war with another nuclear power without it being so much worse right. than it already is. Right. It's- we can't. They are a nuclear power. We're, we're waging this indirect proxy war with right. them, and they started it. They chose it. Russia did, but. That doesn't mean we have to continue it or we have to go, well, we're just right. committed and to look, doing it. And the Biden administration has no plan to, to fix it. Right. And, and of course, Russia invaded, but. America has been meddling in the region for quite some right. time. We've talked on the you show have about to take all the responsibility for those kinds yeah. of things as well. And this seems like more of that. The, I think what is really striking me now that I think about it, about this particular passage, is this tacit argument that more weapons are going to result in fewer of these kinds of children slain, when the opposite is likely true. When you're prolonging a conflict that is an unwinnable conflict, you're going to result in a lot more of these kinds of tragedies that are described. And it seems particularly craven to try to pretend otherwise again, in the context of a photo shoot. Look, I'm not, I'm not one of these people who's really <clears throat> absolutist on this as well. I do think that there are different kinds of figures who have different kind of political contexts who are perfectly fine to go and pose in a magazine if you're going to use it to really bring attention to some certain kinds of issues. But context matters. And I also, I don't get this t-shirt thing. At, at a certain point, <laughs> the aesthetics it's, just of like, the t-shirt. it's just so performative. <laughs> That you're at a fashion shoot, there's there's no pretext of, oh, I, I didn't have time or I don't have a deep wardrobe. If you want to be so committed to the cause that you want to always be battle ready with your attire, I'm sorry, being at a Vogue photo shoot with Annie Leibovitz is not selling it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was just, so I'm just reading an article from my colleague at Reason, Stephanie Slade, about all, again, all the illiberal things Zelensky is doing. He, uh, he, uh, he punished um, the, the opposition platform for life, which has about 10 percent of the seats in Ukraine's parliament. Mm. Uh, he disbanded them entirely. Um, he is centralizing the at least one outlet with ties to a Zelensky rival has been excluded from broadcasting on the new national channel. Um, that's that's, you know, something Zelensky's offended, uh, defended rather. Mm. You know, all of this stuff 
is going on, and it just undermines the very principles we're supposedly fighting for. Yeah. If the if it's hard as soon as it gets kind of hard to tell the good guys from the bad guys or the, the morally gray guys, mm -hmm. bad guys, morally gray guys, because there are you know there are arguments Russian people will make for why you know what, what, whatever went on with the change in Ukrainian government back in uh, 2014, I believe, you know has makes th what they're doing justified or you know more and maybe it's a little bit justified or I, obviously Look, starting a war is not justified, but they have grievances. Ukraine has grievances. We have grievances. Everyone else in Europe has grievances. Uh, but okay, we're just going to defend, you know, the, the people who are on the side of, of the West and democratic principles and a free and open society. Well, are, is that what they're doing? It's, That's not what they're doing and now. And it's never been about that. It's, it's never, never been about, about that, that, which is why, it's look, never been about that. people constantly are very frustrated with folks who evoke women and children, even when women and children are rightly at stake because of the way it has been historically routinely weaponized to justify militarism. Yeah. And now we're seeing it from uh, the vice lady, the, the first lady herself. All right, we'll have more Rising right after this. On Tuesday, Vice President Kamala Harris led a roundtable about the Supreme Court's recent abortion decision and how disabled persons would be negatively affected by lack of access to abortion. Kamala critical Twitter blew up after a clip of how the Veep introduced herself made the rounds. Let's watch. Uh, good afternoon. I want to welcome these leaders for coming in to have this very important discussion um, about some of the most pressing issues of our time. Um, I am Kamala Harris. My pronouns are she and her. I am a woman sitting at the table wearing a blue suit. And... Um, now, I am typically Kamala critical Twitter. That's me. But it frustrates me to see this being the thing that made the round. I understand on first blush, it seems like weird, but this is actually a very common practice. Right. When you're talking to people who are, you know, blind or hearing impaired, visually impaired, to describe what the scene is. And, you know, there are some other examples. I saw one with uh, the star Bridgerton doing this in an award event where they had a special screening for blind folks. And the, one of the reporters was, was blind and said, can you just, just describe your outfit? And he also was like, seemed a little rattled at first and then like realized what was going on and just described the, the outfit. And, you know, it does seem to me that Republicans are overreaching now with some of the stuff. Here's, here's the Régé Jean Page example. As I'm a blind broadcaster, uh -huh. if you can, would you describe your fabulous attire tonight? Would you describe my fabulous attire? Yeah. Okay, um, well, I thank you for the description that is fabulous. <laughs> I hope so. It is a greyish of a wetting suit. I get told off for misdescribing colours, but it's somewhere in the grey range. Spectrum, um, yeah. We are wearing a silver necklace that I should know who made it, but it's those. Um, it's kind of got a little uh, semi-crescent going on. Um, on a thin we'll sleeve. So as you can see, I uh, saw the little heart gesture. You yeah, my, my, I thought my husband came off very well. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm not serious. It's like, what, what, did, what did you make of this? No, I, I was going to surprise you, I think, <laughs> by actually agreeing that and, and, and explaining what you just explained, which is that, no, she's describing the way she looks for people who are blind, which is which does, the first time I saw this done, I don't know in what context it was, I was like, what is going on? But yeah, that that makes sense. I guess, you know, some conservatives were objecting specifically to the pronoun aspect of it, and, you know, the pronoun wars are a 
an endless struggle. Look, Robbie, I don't there know, are no pronouns in the no Constitution. Pronouns. I know. We, were, we actually should share this person we were dunking on because this is a good dunk. Um, this uh, can't Laverne Spicer. Uh, let me see if we can get this uh, tweet up on screen for y'all. I'm going to put this in our Slack channel here. Um, all right. It's uh, so yeah. It should be up there now. So she, this is a candidate for GOP congressional candidate in Florida. Just tweeted. There are no pronouns in the Constitution. So interesting fact: the first word in the preamble of the Constitution is "we," which is a pronoun. So uh, pointing out, I think her like uh, head head picture on Twitter, like the top picture, is a picture of the Constitution, and people are like screen grabbing it, like oh, circling God. "we." So. So, so yeah, I. But okay, to be more serious, it's not possible to be more Look, serious. Th- at this things point. are We're new. Too- I get it. Things are new and weird. We didn't have people didn't go around the circle and name the pronouns when I was in college fifteen years ago. Things change. I understand people bristle a little bit when the first time I saw or heard people do one of these, you know, dis- descriptions for the blind. I didn't know what was going on either. I thought it was just people being extra, but I was wrong. So I, I get it. Like, I get the emotional response, but it does seem to be a weird, cruel bully instinct that's going on where everyone is so eager to jump to these conclusions. And look, I'm the queen. There can be a bullying about the pronoun police as well, though. Excuse me, my pronouns for, are for they. Sure. How dare you? For, for sure. Blah, I do blah. think I, there was a great article by, I think, Sam Adler Bell in New York Magazine a month or two ago. I did a, a podcast episode about it because he had this definition of wokeness that I think really captured what the problem is for people who are frustrated by not just the, not the substance of these movements, but some of the vibes around the movements. And is this the idea, not that things should be better, or things should be described a certain way or done a certain way, but that everyone should already know. And I think what ticks people off is this attitude that presumes that you should already be up to date on the new thing. And most people, most trans people, most black people, most whomever, most Latinx people, they're very, I'm joking, right. but they're, they're, they're very patient with folks because we deal with that every day of our lives and we're used to being the outlier and you just calmly explain to people. I just had a guest who insisted on describing things as Negro this and Negro that, and it is that. You just move through it because he's an older gentleman and it is what it is. But I, you know, I, I dislike Kamala. I'm very frustrated with her. I do not think she's an effective public speaker or a good politician. But this isn't it. And that day is every day. That's it. There will, she will give you another opportunity to do a, to have a clean dunk. <laughs> but this, this is a messy basket. Let's just leave this. Let's leave this one alone. Well, according to a new University of New Hampshire Survey Center Granite poll, just six percent of likely Democratic Party voters in the key voting state said she was their first choice for the Democratic nominee for president. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, your favorite person, Mm. Brianna, he edged out Biden in this same poll. As for the Democratic Party nationwide, a new CNN poll finds 75% of Democratic voters want somebody other than Joe Biden as their nominee for president in 2024. Yeah, I talk about this a little bit in my radar. To be clear again, and like everybody beat Biden in New Hampshire. It's like a weird state to pull. Uh, I think he came in fifth. I, I think Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, obviously Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg yeah. all beat Joe Biden in New Hampshire. I don't think he got out of like fourth place until South Carolina uh, with those first four primaries. But the point of the matter is that, you know, Harris is not popular. She won zero states. She had to drop out of the primary before California, her home state, because Andrew Yang uh, basically unknown 
entity was polling better than her in California. Obviously, Bernie won California big, although they declined to call it for quite some time because that would have looked inconvenient on those nice big maps <laughs> of how the primaries were going. But look, we know this about her. And it was a known quantity about her before she was picked as VP. They really, they really were just checking off boxes. And she and didn't did do well with black this. voters. No. That's the thing. If the justification is... The most is, surface of boxes they were checking off. It's nothing that... Bernie outpaced Kamala Harris two to one with black voters. That's an inconvenient truth, but that's the truth. Right. And so this is the thing with this identity politics stuff. To the extent that you're saying, oh, I want someone who's going to go to bat for black people or gay people with respect to Pete Buttigieg or any other group, women, you got to actually show that they're doing it. And I saw a clip earlier today, and I want to give some credit to Eddie Gloud over at MSNBC, because there was an interview being conducted um, of Carolyn Maloney, who's running against Ra um, uh, Jerry Nadler in, uh, in New York City. There's been some redistricting, and these two establishment Democrats are going up against each other now in this new district. And she was asked, you know, why are you the better candidate? And she says something about women fight harder. Women fight harder. And Eddie Gloud, he, he did his job as a, a journalist that day. And he said, can you actually describe what that means? Like, what does that mean, actually? And it was nothing. It's nothing. It's the same problem we got from Hillary Clinton, even though she turned around and picked a, an anti-choice VP. All of the establishment groups lined up and supported Who? her. <laughs> <laughs> you remember Tim Kaine and the membrane? I've never heard of that person before. <laughs> well, look, and, and again, what was he doing for the ticket? What was the yeah. point of that? Not even a real person. Like, what are they doing? Well, as she said, uh, you could break up the big banks, but you still have sexism. <laughs> you still have sexism. I yeah, believe it's... it was racism, Ronnie. Racism, sorry. Which you know she would even know a harder. lot about. But let me not. Let me not Oof. say. Let me. Let me not say. Let's not beat up on Kamala and then pivot and, <laughs> and pull Hillary. out my hit. My Give Hillary a... hits from 2016. All right, get your licks in. <laughs> well, tomorrow on Rising, Emily Jashinsky and Rebecca Azor will join us for the Rising panel to break down big news of the day. We'll find out what that is tomorrow. Yeah, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you. You never miss any content. And for those of you who, like me, like to listen on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And be sure to check us out on the Plex uh, TV app. Yay. See you tomorrow. <laughs>